हेलो एवरीवन एंड वेलकम टू अवंतिका डिजाइनरिंग सीरीज और एडीएस एस वी लाइक टू कॉल इट एवरी वीक ऑन वेडनेसडे वी फीचर डिजाइन एंड टेक्नोलॉजी लीडर्स हु शेयर द प्रोफेशनल जर्नी दर थॉट्स ऑन द डोमेन ऑफ वर्क एंड डिजाइनरिंग वेयर द वर्ल्ड ऑफ डिजाइन एंड इंजीनियरिंग मीट मेक श्योर यू फॉलोअर्स ऑन सोशल मीडिया इंस्टाग्राम लिंकड इन फेसबुक एंड ट्विटर एंड विद दैट लेट्स कंटिन्यू विद योर शो Taking an idea from concept to market has always been a challenging task for entrepreneurs. An innovative strategy and a robust business model constructed with a design mindset can help obtain this goal. However, a necessary prerequisite is a seamless collaboration between the design team and the business team. So, how can designers efficiently collaborate with business teams? to create a successful business strategy to know more about this theme in this episode we interact with victor ong director head of product design apac adapt at bnn company with a decade and a half experience in user experience and user interface design he holds expertise in user centered design interaction design product design and much more and that's why on our journey of discovering designering we talk to him about from depth of design to the breadth of business hello victor welcome to avantika designering podcast series it's an honor and pleasure to host you on our show today hi hi rohit thanks so much for having me great so victor let's start with your journey with more than a decade of experience in design industry and collaborating with diverse firms over the years from technological giants to fintech companies over the years we would love to hear about your professional journey was it all as seamless and smooth as it looks on your linkedin profile or were there turbulences and lot of challenges can you take us through your journey of course of course uh, my journey itself is actually quite interesting uh, i started in industrial design doing hardcore product designing uh but during the middle of of my studies i realized that as industrial designers we sort of lack a component of business where in terms of who will buy your product at the end of the day who will fund this entire uh design uh which means that who is going to pay for it at the end of the day right so that's where i sort of like diverged into the area of technology business as one of my minor programs that i've done and i graduated with industrial design as major and a minor in techno premiership so there onwards i started my journey my first job as an industrial designer designing real products like physical products uh then there onwards the world of ux started uh to bloom at that point but it was not called ux it was called hci human computer interaction at that point in time nobody knows like what is ux so i ventured and and sort of like bring myself into this world and a lot of my former classmates they were asking me like why would you want to change from drawing like isometry drawing isometric drawings and doing like 3d modeling into just drawing boxes like what's the significance of jumping there uh and it's so much of a risk back then when i started to jump into this area 
And it was in my career in when I changed it to Hewlett Packard, that's when I start to discover the world of like what is UX. But at that point in time, it was still not called UX. Uh, the, the, call, the word sort of like evolved from HCI into IX, which means interaction design. And in this world of interaction design, that's when the divergent into UX, IX, DX, and so forth that, that comes up. Uh, and, and that was when I had a, a privilege of like working on the job training, as well as part of the training, I sort of met a person that today I call her my mentor. Uh, and she gave me a whole world of like HCI um, and, and knowing like what to look out for, what's the importance of doing like user research, uh, terminologies that were used in the former world of HCI that now today is, is called UX. Um, then from there on, my journey was like full-fledged onto the UX and the UX world. Uh, there, I started to go into a fintech company, uh, helping to look at APEC uh, as a whole then going into startup firm because I wanted to grow my breadth of my design skills. It's not just the depth of the design skills that you see in um, MNC companies, for example. Uh, in startup, there's so much more things that you can see that's, that's like the bureaucracy is so flat uh, and things just decide and go. Uh, but the startup firm is short-lived because startup tend to have a a short expectancy life in a lot of companies and startup companies per se. Uh, that's when I sort of like built the, built the team up and then I moved out from there, went into consulting. So I didn't take a typical route as a uh, most of the designers today, you know, like in most designers, they went into a UX side of like breath and then they look at, oh, I like user research and ethnography. Then I venture further into it. Like I become a user researcher. I went from the other way around, like looking at different depth before I went into breadth. Um, that was when I was headhunted into uh, IBM IX. It's a consulting, a tech consulting firm that we look at ASEAN, building up the ASEAN team, uh, as well as my first hand and taste into consulting. So around like a year plus two years down the road, uh, I got hit hunted again, and that's where I ended up today in Bain and Company as the head of design uh, to oversee and build up the competency in management consulting, especially looking at design as a competency, uh, and overseeing the APEC market. So that's where I am today. Wow, that's quite an interesting journey, Victor. I have a question there. Did you have to change um, your mindset, your skill sets? while you were moving from industrial design to startup to large consulting companies to fintech to uh, today in user experience design uh, did you have to keep changing your skills uh, upskilling yourself as well over a period of time of course of course you need of course you need to upskill but underlyingly uh, your core principles of design sort of stay so Usually, like in four years in undergraduate studies in design, you learn so much about appreciation and sensitivity of design. So this, this part of design, I call it the design finesse. And in finesse, it's something that you are trained in and something that sometimes you are born in, uh, where you're able to identify and look at something and, and give the thought of like, oh, this looks nice. This looks pretty. Uh, this looks useful. You know? um, that, that kind of like, cemented down your foundation in design, especially on the finesse side, the appreciation of design. Then as you grow into your, into your work in UX, for example, that's where you start to sort of 
pick up new traits, pick up new skills, and you need to constantly stay updated because design as a field is moving so rapid, so fast, and it's evolving so much that schools are unable to catch up. Uh, in fact, just to share out a fun fact is um, for three years, I was working uh, sort of like an adjunct lecturer in a, in a polytechnic school in Singapore, helping them to craft uh, UX as a subject. It literally changed uh, the view of like how design is being interpreted in school. Uh, and that was a fun thing because you get to inject what industry knowledge is into the education system. But as UX designers that are out there, I would say one advice is constantly update yourself, upgrade yourself because design is such a living subject and it's constantly evolving. Wow, that is a sound advice and, and that is interesting. In fact, um, you know, you are passionate about building and leading design teams, enabling them to achieve successful business outcomes by aligning with stakeholders, bringing user stories to life and making sure that you are designing the right thing first before you design things right. Now, that's a lovely philosophy. Can you can you elaborate on that philosophy of yours? The philosophy of designing the right thing first before you design things right. Of course, Rohit. Uh, it's an interesting philosophy that I sort of coined up after I went into consulting. So in consulting, you get to see a whole breadth of clients. Uh, and a lot of times you have clients that, uh, for example, let me quote one of them. Uh, I shall not name the company name, but it's a very interesting thing. So the boss uh, of this company knows Jack Ma. He was having a, a golf session and they were talking about uh, apps that their companies have built. So Jack Ma was telling him that, oh, look, you see, my company have such and such app. How come you don't have? And, and with that context, he came back and started a team to look at digitizing his sort of company. And uh, the team that he sort of like assembled, it's like Avengers getting assembled, has no clue on how to run uh, design and building apps per se. Uh, in their context, uh, designers are just there to make things pretty. And, but there's a lot of times that we are, in consulting, we will face this kind of clients. And it's also the role of the designer that's on the case or on the project to sort of help the client to change their mindset that they need to look at design from another perspective, putting user at the center of it all instead of making things just looking pretty. And that itself sort of like started that philosophy in that sense, uh, making sure that you're actually designing the right things uh, rather than you're just listening to your clients saying that what they want. Because sometimes the client might not really know at the end of the day that what they actually needed or what they wanted because they did not put the user at the center of it all. And it's us and up to us in terms of designers helping them to shape that answer, helping them to sort of rebuild like what should be the right thing. Well, that's such a sound advice and such an interesting advice. In fact, Victor, while you've been talking about consulting companies all this while, let's talk about your organization that, with, with which you're working right now. In fact, the ADAPT or Advanced Digital and Product Team is a fast-growing, collaborative and high-performing team 
uh, at, at Bain and Company with a passion of transforming breakthroughs into dependable and successful strategies. Now, while developing new solutions, uh, Victor, we must constantly bear in mind that the solution must be able to withstand the disruptive marketplace and the rivals, of course. And obviously, to do so, we must consider the aspects that may not affect your design. The question that I have for you there, Victor, is how do you and your team align success factors before beginning the design process? And the other question connected to that is how do design teams collaborate with business teams to achieve extraordinary results? Oh, awesome, awesome, awesome question here. Um, like I mentioned earlier, in terms of design-wise, you need to look at fundamentally who is going to pay the check, not as in not paying the consultants, but who's going to fund the project in the end of the day, at the end of the day. Um, and that's when you sort of like have this early alignment when you go into any, from a consulting perspective, when you go into any of the case or project, is to have early stakeholder alignment uh, to say that what, what success looks like to the business and, and how can design together with the consulting team or the, the business team help to bring uh, friction in terms of like the end, how that, that answer at the end of the day will look like, like how the project or the product will look like. Uh, and, and that's where you start to put in the factor of like working together with a business team, uh, laying down your ROIs, uh, making sure that at the end of the day, this this project uh, is sound financially. Uh, and, and that's something that, that in terms of consulting-wise, that's where you sort of come into picture. And especially for designers, right? We oftentimes design without the context of knowing cost of production, uh, without knowing the return of investments that's going to come out. Uh, and as designers, we tend to like, oh, it looks good. Oh, uh, it's good for the user. But we, in consulting and especially in business, is that we need to make sure that there is a balance uh, in between like what business wanted, how much churn or how much profit or PNL that can come out of this product, uh, as well as at the end of the day, how long it will take uh, to produce this, this product or project by itself. Wow, well said. Excellent. In fact, um, uh, it's a collaborative effort of all the teams coming together and blending their thought processes that leads to, uh, you know, successful customer stories out there. In fact, while talking about uh, that, Victor, companies of any scale, while you mentioned earlier also, from startups to multinational corporations, realize the potential of design thinking across industries. They seek to build strong in-house design capabilities instead of outsourcing to design consultancies. The question that I have for you there is, what is the future of design consultancies and how the role and profile of the consultants may develop in near future? Since you are associated with a design consultancy, you've worked with them in past, you've also worked with startup in past. How do you think the future of this looks like? Good, awesome question here. So let me break that down into three aspects. Uh, firstly is if you're looking at an in-house team, not a lot of company will first understand what design value is. 
uh, two, will have the financial capabilities of sort of sustaining a, a design team of their own in-house. Uh, and especially for big companies that, that have an uh, in-house design team, usually their products are, are quite sort of like everything that's developed in-house rather than and putting it outsourced, you know, like development is outsourced to some company, design is outsourced to some company. They hold the entire end-to-end experience. And oftentimes, I would say that teams that are built in terms of an in-house team itself have a deep key competency where in terms of someone that's doing interaction design, it's very specialized in just doing interaction design. Or someone that's doing user research is very solely focused on user research. And they're so good at their work, for example. Then um, second part of it, if you're talking about consultancy itself, I would say consultancy can come in the aspect of like two tiers. One could be a tech consulting in terms of like you bring in value, uh, in terms of some company that might not want to build a design team. You know, they might have a product team, but not a design team. So their design is outsourced, for example. And in consultancy, such setup of a consultancy is you're helping such clients to sort of build up their first product. So working hand in hand with the product owners or even their product management team, uh, defining and building up that product. Thirdly, that's when... Um, management consulting comes in. And it's interesting because on management consulting front, companies that come to look for management consultancies usually are those that are looking for a fresh strategy, like a different approach to what they are facing today or what the products are today. And they might come in with requests of A, but then at the end of the engagement with a management consultancy house, uh, that's when the answer might become A plus one or maybe B after they reshape the strategy of the product. So if you're talking about the future of uh, design in consultancy, I would say that it's pretty bright because depending on the need of the business uh, and they come in at different tier, right? They could be asking for an in-house team, or the, which is a deep tea. And if you were to come in in terms of a tech consulting, that's where a little bit of a breath and also a little bit of depth, that's because you're helping as an agency, you help the, the companies to build up their product. Uh, and if you're coming in from a management consulting side, that's when you're putting your thinking hats on, uh, relooking the problem from a fresh perspective, uh, looking at it from a strategy standpoint. And, and I would say, the, the entire uh, consulting is actually growing, in fact. If you look across the board, like in today, especially, especially in COVID situation, a lot of companies are looking for a change on their digital front. Uh, gone are the days that companies are just doing like, like selling on, in malls or even like in shops, for example, right? During COVID, no one can go in into shops. So companies are scrambling like, oh, what should I put in in terms of my strategy to go digital? So in fact, I would say the management consulting site, if you're looking at the design and digital capabilities, it has exploded. Hey, did you know Bain and Company is a founding member of the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, a partnership of 40 plus global plastics supply chain businesses that have promised $1.5 billion over five years to eradicate plastic waste in the environment. 
above that is a fresh perspective to the entire world of consultancy and you know the kind of opportunities which are also out there you know taking a cue from what you mentioned earlier victor we need to assess the concepts performance during the design thinking process and know whether we have designed the product for the correct group of clients the question that i have for you there is what is the framework that you adopt to calculate the design value mm, a nice one i wouldn't say that it's in terms of a framework to calculate the design value i would say it's in terms of the approach uh, towards towards this uh, making sure that you are designing for the correct group of people so uh, i mentioned earlier in terms of putting user at the heart of your design so that's when you you need the capabilities of constantly jumping on into your user testing so it could be like concept testing uh, user research or even uh, checking out your designs and and running it in terms of a user test uh, pre-plan your work with a lot of user testing it's time consuming yes but in terms of shaping and getting to the right solutioning i think it helps greatly uh, because you are not the user your user might give you something surprising that maybe you will find that oh this is a very interesting insight and can i incorporate this insight into my product into or into my project for example so i would say it's not about calculating the design value it's more about putting your user at the heart of your framework and incorporating and putting in pockets of time for user testing Bob, that's an interesting advice, and again, an interesting approach uh, towards your work. You know, Victor, while uh, I was researching about you in a recent conference where you spoke, you shared a mobile-only market mindset instead of a mobile-first market perspective, which is usually what people talk about. Can you elaborate on this thought? And do you think that? Uh, mobile you know only market mindset uh, is a sustainable business strategy yeah it's a good it's a good topic to talk on in terms of like which touch point first right uh, and if you look across and just now when i mentioned staying fresh in terms of like what is happening around you uh, in terms of like what are the updates around you uh, you will start to realize that a lot of uh research and conversation is on uh mobile first or the mobile only kind of strategy uh and that's when you look at some of the number crunches that people have done uh looking at your gen z your gen alpha or even like the younger generation of of consumers today they are all sticking their eyes onto the phone so day in day out is just on their phone and so much more time has been spent on the phone rather than on a desktop Or, or a laptop per se. So why would you want to design for a laptop first or a mobile first approach? Why not focusing your attention and make sure that your experience that you build up is the best of the best experience that you can give on a mobile only interface. So just to say, right? Let, let's look at the example of e-commerce today, right? And uh, an interesting sort of like. Uh, by study uh, insight is that a lot of people tend to like surf uh, online when they are taking a dump in the toilet, and, and and a lot of sales are transacted when 
when people are sort of like spending their their quality time in 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 the toilet. You know, it's it, it's funny, but but that's when um things happen, and, and and one of the reaction is also look at like I mean look at Instagram. You have all these short sales that that advertisements that come up in the middle when you're swiping and looking at your friends, uh, or any of your updated uh, Instagram posts, right? And, and they are so short and simple that it made the entire experience of purchasing near seamless. With maybe three clicks, you're already able to to select a product, uh, as well as even uh, sort of finish and complete your entire purchasing journey. So uh, short to saying, uh, mobile-only experience would be like the most ideal, I feel personally, in terms of like when we're designing forward for the future of, of like uh, designs. Well, wow, that's absolutely well said. A lot of things that you mentioned that I could completely connect to it um, in terms of spending, you know, large amount of time on, on the phone, you know, your e-commerce purchase, content consumption on the phone. And it's completely uh, changed, uh, you know, altogether out there. In fact, while at this conference, you mentioned one more interesting thing. You mentioned an approach to visual design that is use visual cuteness as it is attractive and how it ties to the Asian culture. Can you elaborate on this? What do you mean by visual cuteness? Uh, this is an interesting thing, and and it's quite unfortunate that we are doing this as a audio podcast because I have like slides to to showcase. Uh, in terms of visual cuteness, right? If you look at it, uh, across like, mm, let me think, uh, Tokopedia, uh, e-commerce in Indonesia, or uh, even Shopee of Thailand, uh, you can just Google it and and try looking at those. Uh, you'll find out that they have they start to create uh, mascots. That, that speaks uh, of sort of like helpfulness, uh, bringing that sort of another perspective, a visual, a fresh visual perspective on their apps. Uh, and, and this alone, right, is something to do with, with Asian culture. Uh, you can look at it like someone, a, a woman of like 40, right, you know, would look at Hello Kitty and say that Hello Kitty is cute. You don't see a 40-year-old Caucasian lady will take up or dress up as, as Hello Kitty. Right, uh, and um, color pink, for example, uh, you can see it in the a lot of Asian uh, ladies across uh, Asia Pacific. It's, it's it personify uh, cuteness. Uh, other than that, you can also see a lot of uh, um, even people are looking at even guys are even crazy on things like Doraemon, for example. Um, so. Taking this sort of like cues from like cartoons, animation, or manga that people grow up in, especially for Asian, and sort of like massage this into your solution. And one of the most uh, very obvious thing is looking at mascot. But there's a there's a distinct line in between doing it tastefully, and also it might you know literally destroy your your user interface. So there's this fine line that you need to control your design between how a mascot looks like on the interface and how can it bring value, not just through cuteness, but how can it soften down the seriousness of your product offering? So uh, one very good example is Tokopedia that I just mentioned earlier. Uh, check that out on Google. And, and if you look at it, it's an e-commerce website. 
And as you know, e-commerce on mobile, you tend to like overwhelm with a lot of information. Uh, there's too much stuff on it, for example. And, and how they use these mascots to introduce and soften down complexity, for example. Wow, that's that's absolutely cute. And that's a, that's a very, very fine observation. I can completely relate to it. In fact, when you move out and when you see the mobile phone covers, a lot of youngsters, a lot of people are using the Hello Kitty mobile phone covers and mobile phone covers with um, very, uh, uh, very interesting caricatures and mascots out on them. Uh, it's 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 a it's a trending. Um, uh, it's 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 definitely trending, and a lot of people are hooked onto it. And um, now I definitely connect the dot with what do you actually mean by visual cuteness out there. <laughs> I mean, Rohit, if you look at it this way, right, and, and you good, you made a very good point where you, you see a lot of the Asians, especially, like, love to sort of personalize. And the level of personalization and, and cuteness, you can see it from their phone covers. Um, across the board, if you just look at um, Apple selling their phone covers, it's a very uh, plain sort of like cover. Maybe the most they do is they add colors to make it look attractive. But if you were to walk into a shopping mall and look at covers, phone covers, it's a, it's a crazy world of phone covers, especially in Asia. And, and, and you were right, there's like Hello Kitty, Disney characters, some, some and, and manga characters, a lot of visual cuteness in a physical world that it actually gets translated into, if you turn it into visual, um, it, it works in such a way for Asia. Absolutely. Uh, spot on and well said. While we've been talking about visual design, I would like to turn the steering towards the user experience design, something where you have a strong proficiency uh, out there. As designers, we have our mode of thinking and mental model, Victor. The common thread that holds the discipline of user experience together is the desire to create effortless and meaningful experiences between people and the digital products. The question that I have for you there is how can designers understand the context of a design problem and create a solution that fits two pieces of the same puzzle that is the user and the experience? Uh, I think I think on this itself, right, when you mentioned of like how can designers understand the context of a design problem, uh, I think we need to put on a different lens as well, going back to who pays for the product, right? And, and that's the component of having business in it. Uh, and a lot of times when you're shaping uh, and understanding the design problem, it's best to bring in your stakeholders, especially the product uh, owners or the sponsors or the stakeholders or even the, the business people itself. And that's when you sort of, after your research that you have done, the insights that you have found, you have a co-creating session. And this co-creating session is very, very, very important because you get to bring uh, and hear the voices, uh, people's sort of people's sort of like uh, priorities, or even sometimes it could be different business units agenda that all of them put forth on a table, everyone looking through it objectively and reforming and reprioritizing in terms of like how can we shape 
towards a better answer or solution. So it's not just trying to fit between a user and its experience. There's the component of user experience as well as business. Then if you can start to sort of like experience and business are aligned, then you move on further, like keep adding your users in the middle of your, your entire solution, running your user testing and running your user research, your concept testing. That's when you get to shape uh, and make sure that your these three components are talking and, and sort of having this synergy. The end of the day, user is at the middle of it all. Hey, did you know Bain & Company is ranked the number one in the World Consulting 50 for 2021? Bain has also topped Walt's list of best consulting firms for the firm's work culture. Wow, absolutely well said. Everything around uh, in a business revolves around, uh, you know, the customer, the user. In fact, while talking about the world of business, there's one question that I have there for you. Advancements in startups, quickly changing markets and evolving technological possibilities make it even more critical to develop innovative business models and rethink the traditional ones. What I wish to know from you is how can we apply the mindset of a designer to create the overall strategy and business model? Right. So, so this is quite interesting is because like um, in today, if you look at the business model alone itself, right, uh, you get to see that it's very hierarchical or very pyramidal in a way that uh, that's how business runs, right? It, it's almost like a pyramid. But then with design coming into the picture and, and applying these lenses on like how design can shape uh, strategy, business, etc., you fall back into your design thinking uh, philosophies. And, and that's where a designer can bring in the value uh, using design thinking processes or design thinking methodologies to help sort of break down complexity, one. Um, using Scrum as well as like Agile that's when you sort of uh, make people able to co-create together, uh, working together, uh, pushing things up faster. All these are your sort of design thinking methodologies and your processes. And all these things are slowly seeping into organization to the point that sometimes organization has called it like digital digitalization. Some companies call it the new ways of working. Uh, and even like some company will just just call it the the uh, design way of or design thinking approach uh, in companies. And, and look at it this way: in whichever jargon or whichever terminology they will call it, design has been playing an impact in business. Design has been playing an impact in terms of like how to shape product development faster, better, more efficient. Bob, that is beautifully put, and. Due to paucity of time, it brings me to one of my last questions. User research is a very critical method when developing a consumer-centric product. How do you see these technical developments like big data, artificial intelligence, and other disruptive technologies impacting the user research process itself? So that's a very interesting question. Uh, in terms of user research itself today, if you look at uh, tools in the market, such as Indemo, usertesting.com, Marvel, uh, and, and most recently, I think there's a company called Dovetail uh, that 
looks at big data or AI or newer ways of incorporating technology into helping you to break down insights, to scribe your um, uh, conversations that you have with your users and sort of allow the user researcher or the user research designer to speed up uh, their synthesis of their user research. Uh, a lot of times today, it's very manual, la manual labor, labor intensive, and, and that takes up a lot of time on the user research front. Uh, one of the things that user research uh, is is sort of good at pulling up is in terms of quotes of insights. So, like for example, a user A said such and such and such, but in order to pull that up, is that it's very manual right now of sort of recording it on pen and paper or you're putting it on your Excel when you're transcribing. But if you have tools or AI tools that sort of help you and sort of make your life more efficient in user research and, and uh, synthesis, it, it speeds up the entire, uh, entire user research process. And, and to me, I think that it's, it's still a place that is still evolving today. Uh, there's no one right answer. Uh, take for example, if you look at if you want to run uh, design research in China itself, it becomes a bit difficult, especially with technology that's getting barred by the Great Firewall of China, uh, and and not everything can be so seamlessly sort of like uh, on the the Chinese network, right? It's that it, it becomes very sluggish, especially if you have something of a server that's coming out from US. Yeah. And and today I I don't have a answer in terms of like what is the best way or the more efficient way, but I would say big data and AI is, is shaping and changing the way that we are looking at user research. Wow, that is an interesting insight, and that brings me Victor to my last question. At Avantika University, we've coined the term designering, which is design plus engineering. The question that I have for you there is: Do you think both these terms can converge and meet at the same point? It's an interesting term here because um, let, let's look at it this way. If you're looking at an industrial design role itself, right? The industrial designer needs to know components of engineering, like your production, your manufacturing, your mold crea creation, for example. Uh, that's the technical side. Uh, today, if I were to look from my lens as a management consulting or the consulting side of things, I would say that you need a component of design, business, and engineering uh, to be a more versatile uh, designer stepping into the career world. So for those uh, students that are, are currently doing your graduate undergraduate studies, uh, I do urge you in terms of like, if you have a chance to take up electives in business, please take that up. It, it gives you a different perspective into like how can business design and engineering work together. Wow, that was a beautiful uh, uh, ending note to the episode, Victor. Thank you so much for making time for this conversation. I'm sure that our listeners are going to enjoy listening to this podcast and learn a lot of things from this conversation. Awesome. No, thanks, to, thanks for having me, Rohit. Hey, welcome everyone to our new segment where we are hosting a design startup studio and we've been talking to Tricycle Brand Solution. Kaushik, continuing our conversation from where we left last time. You know, branding is a very important exercise. 
But most organizations want to do it either after they've raised funding or they've crossed certain milestones. However, if you ask me, and having been an entrepreneur in past, it starts right on the day you've actually thought of your idea, when you when you are conceptualizing your positioning. The question that I have for you there is, why is branding important at an early stage for your target customers? Right, uh, Rohit. So, uh, very well uh, very well asked, you know, actually, this is a very important question and this is a question that we face always. Uh, people, and rightfully said, you know, people think this is a later stage exercise. We believe it's not because what we say is branding is just like investment. It's an investment in your business. You need to do it right from the day you have conceptualized your business and it goes on till the day that, you know, by God forbid, you have to shut shop. You know, that's that's what the extent of branding is. Another misconception people have is that people think, especially in the Indian market, people believe branding is is advertising. Which is not a lot of people, you know. There's colloquially they say branding. Huh? We also do branding. Uh, that's not. You have done communication. You have done advertising. Branding is not advertising because we always tell our clients, you know, fine. You know, when you want, you have a product or you have a service or you have an idea, whatever you have. When you go out in the market and you have to communicate about it, before you do that exercise, you need to first understand yourself as to that. What is it that you want to talk about? Who are you? How do you look? What do you do? You talk in English. What do you wear? Are you formal? Are you casual? Do you like red? Do you like blue? There are multiple questions that you need to acknowledge yourself, and therefore arrive. This is what branding does. You know, it creates the entire spectrum of answering what you are and what you're supposed to do. Get your facts right before you step out, and thereby talk to people about who you are. You know, because most of the communication that you see where branding has not played a crucial role are always functional communication. And that's where it falters. It just becomes just like any other communication. Branding makes, creates that difference because when you know what you are, that's when you create the difference, right? Interesting. That's that's a, a definitely interesting outlook to how you look at the entire thing. And Kaushik, you know, taking a cue from what you just said right now, I, I, I would like to ask, what are some of the common branding mistakes that entrepreneurs or clients land up making? In fact, in India, most conversation is around visual communication, like the logo or how, how the brand looks like. But in fact, when you talk about a brand, there's a huge financial asset value intact in it. And, and it can give you great returns in the long run. So how can we be mindful of this fact and avoid some of the common mistakes? Yes, absolutely. There are major mistakes which are happening, especially nowadays. Uh, you know, people are misinterpreting branding. Biggest, uh, and I don't blame any media per se. Like, for example, the latest thing is people think digital uh, marketing or digital social media is if, if you do social media, you have done your branding enough. It's wrong. These are all platforms. These are all medias, you know. You need to first create, as I said earlier also, you need to create what you are. You need to know who you are. You need to know how you're going to portray yourself before you even go further and talk, right? One of the biggest problems that people do is, you know, they believe that branding, once I do it, I just create the templates and I create how I look and then that's it. It's over. I can just keep plastering anything on it and it will just sound the same. It will just look the same. It doesn't happen that way. It's, it's, it's a continuous exercise. You need to know where to draw the line. You need to, need to know how much to say, how much not to say. It's a, it's a very balanced exercise. It's a continuous exercise. You cannot let it go. You shouldn't let it go because, so there are two ways. We always tell our clients, you know, you are a business. 
right? You have been doing business great enough. You have been making good money. You don't need us to do your business. But if you want to create valuation for what you do, if you want to create, if you want people to value irrespective of what you do, that's where branding plays a part. You know, it is very crucial that people understand this difference very well. Okay, the difference between right branding and right communication. The two different things altogether. Absolutely well said, Kaushik. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. And we will continue conversation with Kaushik and Samyadeep in our next episode. Thank you. Thank you, Rohit. Thank you so much. Hey there, we hope you enjoyed our show. Do write to us on ads at the rate avantika.edu.in. We look forward to your opinions, feedbacks and suggestions of speakers you would like us to host on this show. Do tune in our channel next week on Wednesday for a new story on Hubhopper or wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter.